the book of Mark this morning, the book of Mark, and the book of Mark, we'll be looking in chapter number six here in just a moment. You've heard of folks that are, you ever heard of, like they got what, the dog whisperer? You've heard of what that is? You know what that means? Somebody who has has a way with animals, I guess, a way with dogs, and then I've heard that used by other people that they're, you know, they've... Uh, horse whisperer, they can control horses and things like that. Well, I don't know what the, os- the opposite of whisperer is, but apparently I've got the gift, okay? I don't know what it is, but I can make a wild animal mad in, in any country, all right? Uh, I, I, don't know what, I don't know what it is. I've had monkeys attack me. I have. I've, had, I've, I've, been, I've been attacked by monkeys uh, in, in, on three continents. Uh, I have, you know, I've just had some bad experiences, you know? And uh, my wife says I bring them on myself. But anyway, uh, we were in Old San Juan. We had some downtime Saturday afternoon, so we went to Old San Juan. And uh, we started in. The, of course, they had it closed, as, as I could figure. I walked about two miles, and it was closed because of COVID. You couldn't go in and tour the fort. But uh, out there on the wall, we were watching these big green iguanas. And uh, those things range from, I don't know, they, they range from about, 12 inches, 18 inches, and then some of the big ones, I saw one is over three feet. And so there's one of the big ones, he's there on the grass, and I've never been around an iguana, and uh, never had no, no need to be around one, you know, never wanted to be around one. But uh, Colin was fascinated by it, so I was trying to get it to, you know, take a picture of it, get it to stick its head up, and it was, there was some on the wall, and I think there's maybe some of his girlfriends up there and some of the holes in the wall, I'm not real sure, but he's down on the ground. So I went to hissing at him. And so I, I'd hiss at him and, 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 yeah, see if I could, you know, get him to raise his head. So I hissed at him, and he, he raised his head, and he bobbed his head up and down real fast and got a big old flap of skin that comes out under their neck. And uh, he, he bobbed, and I said, get, get a picture, get a picture. I said, Mr. Fun, get him closer. And so I went to hissing at him. And sure enough, here he comes. Now, typically, iguanas are pretty, pretty scared. You, you, they run from you pretty fast. And uh, here he come over. So I said, watch him. Watch him. He, watch, get, get, a, get a video, Colin. Get a video. Well, <clears throat> before I realized it, that rascal had the big old knot swelled up on his neck. And he's mad. Oh, he's in fighting mode. So I didn't think swelled up. And he come, come over to, right, I mean, come right up poor eyes at and he throwed that head up, and he cocked that head, and he bobbed up and down. And I said, you believe that? Do you believe that? And Levi said, you know them things can run faster than you can, right? <laughs> I said, really? He said, preacher, I promise you they're fast as grease lightning. I'd leave him alone if I was you. <laughs> so I very slowly went to backing up, you know, to get away from the iguana. Come home with an iguana bite on your jaw. How do you explain that, you know? Yeah. Ugliest thing you've ever seen in your life. Great big old lizards. And the bad part of it is they said that they eat them. Uh, in Honduras, they eat the things. And uh, they, they, they cook them and eat them. And whew, I can't imagine eating anything that looks that bad. I, they were rough looking. Now I'm just going to tell you. So uh, I, didn't, I did not get a guano attack. Do not let anybody tell you I did. But we did have a close call. And so... Uh, the, 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 the moral of the story is if you're ever in old San Juan, don't hiss at the lizards, all right? You could get, get in real trouble. 
Take your Bible and turn with me uh, to the book of Mark, chapter number 6. And I'm interested, beginning in verse number 45. Genesis, or excuse me, Mark chapter number 6. I'm interested in verse 45. You'll stand with me for just a moment. I'd like to read just just a few verses here. The Bible says in verse 45, And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. I let off reading right there, but I would like to look to, to this morning at the passage, and I'd like to focus on the thought, the fourth watch. Let's bow our heads together if we can. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege to be back in the pulpit one more time. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in our midst. We thank you, Lord, for all the ways you've helped and blessed. We give you glory. We thank you, Lord, for intervening now uh, in this service. Lord, we need the liberty of the Spirit of God. We pray, Lord, you'd search my heart and the heart of every believer that's present. And Lord, would you help us, Lord, to get our minds and our hearts focused now upon the preaching of your word and zero in on what you got for us. Lord, we'll never have another opportunity on this day at this time, uh, Lord, to experience what you've got lined up for us. So, Lord, help us now and speak to us through your word in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Thank you very much, and please be seated. If you'll go back just a little bit, you'll find out that there's been the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, and that has just taken place. And so uh, they're coming off of a, of a, of a, big, uh, a big event and, and a big time uh, in their lives, the disciples are. And the scripture says they took up those fragments, uh, the baskets of fragments of the fishes. I've heard a lot of people over time uh, that have back and forth uh, said, what do you think they did with those fragments? Some have said, well, uh, you know, there are 12 disciples and so each one got a Got a, got a basket full. Well, that, that could have been. And maybe they carried that with them, you know, as their provision for several days. And it reminded them of what the Lord had done. It could have been. I don't know. But uh, I think I, I heard a fella say this, an older gentleman that was with us uh, down, in, uh, down in, in, in the islands. I heard him say this about the feeding of the 5,000s. And he, and he said this. He said that... Uh, Little boy went home and said, Mama, you're not going to believe what I brought. He gave his lunch, and maybe they sent those 12 basketfuls home with the little boy. Is that bless anybody? I'd never seen that before. I'd never thought about that. But let me tell you what I got out of that. Let me tell you where I'm at with that. God always honors sacrifice. So to believe that God put back his lunch, I ain't got a bit of problem with that. 
But you know what I find? God never just gives you back what you give. Because God won't be outgiven. He's a debtor to no man. And so when you give to God, He always gives back more than you invest. He always does. That's just that's the law of sowing and reaping. You don't plant one grain of corn and expect to get one grain of corn back. That's not the way it works. You get multiplication of it. And so I'd never seen that, never thought about that, never even con- considered that. But Brother Don Strange, pastor down in the Winkler Road, we helped him in disaster. Uh, he and I were talking, and he made that statement uh, this past week, and I, and I was blessed by that. So I don't know exactly what they did with the, with the groceries that they had on board, uh, but uh, nevertheless, or what that they, that they had taken up, don't know exactly what they did with them. But anyway, it's been a miracle of increase. Now, the Bible says in verse number 45, And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before into Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. So see if I can see if you can understand the, 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 the setting. Around the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee is the second lowest body of water on earth. The lowest is the Dead Sea, which it drains into. And so the Sea of Galilee is actually below sea level. And the, the land that's around it is rugged. And so it's a series of mountains. It's almost like a big, big ravine where the lake's at. And so it's fairly steep coming down the sides. And so traveling around the, the lake, uh, it was just easier to travel by, by sea. It was a whole lot easier to, to go across the lake uh, by the boat because the boat is smooth than it would be to walk or to try to ride or whatever and go all the way around the long way around. And so uh, they used all the way around the Sea of Galilee. The boats were used as taxis, used as commerce. That was a common thing. And so the scripture says uh, to go to the other side before under Bethsaida. So this is the destination here uh, to, to Bethsaida. Now, it's the Sea of Galilee. The scripture refers to it as that. It's also in your Bible, uh, and by the way, the phrase Galilee, it means weeping. Uh, it's also referred to in, uh, it's referred to as uh, the Sea of Tiberias, because the city of Tiberias, was, we spent the night in Tiberias, uh, was there, and uh, the, that would have been the, probably the Greek phrase or the Greek name for it, or even the Roman name for it, and it meant the Sea of the Gods, and then... There was also one other name. It was also referred to as the Lake Genesaret. And when you use that phrase, it means the garden of riches. And can I say it was indeed a garden of riches. It was a fertile place uh, full of fish, and it was a, it was a tremendous place. Uh, it turned out to be a place of weeping, uh, as Galilee infers, because uh, it was that place that uh, even his own uh, wouldn't believe him, and he could do no more miracles among them because of it. And so uh, this is where we're talking about, the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles across. You can see across it, you know, because there's mountains on the other side. You can, you can look across it and see across it. Uh, it's about eight miles wide. It's about 13 miles long. But you can imagine then, if you're going to go from this side to that side, it's easier to go straight across than it is to go all the way around. And so there's the destination here as they prepare for sailing. And then uh, the scripture says, when he had sent them away in verse 46. So there's the destination of the preachers, uh, of, of, the, of the disciples. And then there's the dismissal of the people. He sent them away. Now, so that you get, so that you, that's why you know that's important. More than likely, they left before it got dark. 
there were no street lights. Most of them probably didn't have anything with them to see on the way home. And so he probably dismissed them in the late afternoon so that they could see to get home before it got dark. And then the Bible says, and he departed into a mountain to pray. And so there is the departure for prayer. I think it's interesting how much the Lord Jesus uh, thought necessary to pray. And somebody said, well, he was God. Why was he praying? Well, the same as in Genesis 1-1, let us make God in our image. The triune Godhead has always uh, communed one with the other. And so it was the, uh, it was the common thing for the Lord Jesus uh, to, to, to have time in prayer. And of course, there's some typology here as well. Think about what I'm fixing to say. Uh, the disciples were sent out into the sea. The sea is a picture of the world. They're in a boat. The boat, that's a picture of the church. Of course, the disciples, they're a picture of you and I. The Lord Jesus went up into a mountain to pray. Where's Christ at right now? He's in heaven. What's he doing? He's advocating for us, isn't he? Is he not taking our part? And is he not sitting at the right hand of God the Father where he makes intercession for us? Where's the church at? We're out in the midst of the world. And uh, we're toiling. And, of course, storms come, don't they? That's a part of being out in the world. Uh, and then uh, we're going to see here just a few moments that the, it, just in time, the Lord comes uh, to the disciples where they are. Can I tell you the next great event, thank God on God's prophetic calendar, is uh, the Lord Jesus coming to get his own. Uh, a lot of folks have really been down in the mouth, and I sense it here this morning. I don't know if I've made you mad already telling a lizard story, or if people are just down and out. I got news for you. If Trump was the reason you shouted, you had a holler shout, that's all I can tell you. If that's all your shout was about, then you got a holler shout. I'll say that unashamedly. You'll find nobody that's more pro-life, pro-family, pro-Israel than I am, and he was, and I was glad he was. And I supported them in that. But I got news for you. There's something a whole lot bigger and better than that on the horizon. And it's the coming of the Savior. And you need to understand that it rarely does lightning strike out of a blue sky. Is that right? What usually happens before you get a lightning strike? It clouds up, doesn't it? Well, it's getting cloudy. But what does that tell you? That tells you, hallelujah, that we're getting closer. We're closer than we've ever been. So I'm just going to say it this way. God's people might as well get used to where we're at because we're in the midst of the sea and it's being tossed. I deleted the notifications off of Fox off of my phone. I ain't putting up with that for the next 48, well, the next 96 months. I ain't putting up with that. I am not putting up with that. They are not going to ruin my day 17 times an hour. Fly, news flash. The devil's raging, newsflash, the devil's done this, and the devil, and I ain't done, no, 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 I ain't putting up with that. I stay defeated enough as it is, I ain't putting up with that. And by the way, if that's where you get your nutritional value every day, you're in trouble, friend. You better turn that news channel off, you better get your, hey, instead of being on Facebook, you need to get your face in the book, amen. You need to get, your, you need to get some nutrition from this book right here, and I'm getting ahead of myself. There's the preparation for sailing in verse 45 and 46. There's the peril of the sailors in verse 47 in the first part of verse 48. The Bible says that when even was come, that's the time of their journey. When was even? 
evening really starts. I, I always have to get on to the radio announcers because they can't, uh, they, 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 they get it, they, they, they get it mixed up. Uh, afternoon occurs from noon until 6 p.m. It's afternoon. And at 6 p.m. it becomes evening. Okay. And technically speaking, evening runs till midnight. Technically speaking. And so this evening, if you greeted someone, how are you this evening? At 11 o'clock at night, you'd still be all right. Because that's what time it is, all right? It's in the evening. And the scripture says, and when even was come. So here's the point. What time did they dismiss? In time to go home, all right? When did the disciples leave out? They left out during that time frame. They left, and then he dismissed the, the crowd, remember? And the Bible says, and when even was come. So we know that was probably around the 6 o'clock hour in the evening, about to get, well, depending on time of the year, but about to get dark. There's the time of the journey, but then there's the trouble in the journey. The Bible says the ship was in the midst of the sea. The midst of the sea. Now here's the problem with this. The lake is only 8 miles wide. And they are just now about halfway. In the midst, I'm going to take it literally, the midst of the sea. They're, so they're about four miles from shore. Did you hear about the guy that was going to swing, swim the English Channel? And he swam and got halfway and said, I'm too tired. And he tried to swim back. <laughs> That's where they were. <laughs> hey, it's just as far back that way as it is that way. The Lord didn't tell us to turn and go that way. The Lord told us to go that way. And we're in the midst of the sea. We might as well go on that way. Because that's where we're supposed to be going anyway. And so the Bible says that they were, if you will, adrift in the sea. And the sea was in, and the ship was in the midst of the sea. And the Bible says, and they were alone in the sea. And the Bible says, he and he alone on the land. So he's over there on the mountain praying, and they're out in the midst of the sea. There's trouble in their journey. There's the time of their journey. There's the trouble in their journey. But look at this phrase. There's the toiling on their journey. Now you got to, sometimes we read things pretty fast and we miss it. Slowly read the beginning part of verse 48. Where's he at in 47? Where's he at? He's alone on the mountain. Where are they at? They're at least four miles away in the midst of the sea and it's after dark. And the scripture says in verse 48, and he saw them. You ever seen that? I'd never seen that. But it says it, doesn't it? You say, how did he see them? Well, just the same way he sees me and you, amen. I mean, he, 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 his perception. The scripture says the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. And the eyes, of the, hey, there's nothing hid from the eyes of the Lord. And so the scripture says that, uh, that, 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 and Mark, as he penned the Holy Spirit through Mark, uh, Mark noticed the perception of their toiling. The Lord picked up on it. My disciples are in trouble. My disciples are in a situation. Now, can I say this? He controls the elements. He controls everything. He knew there was going to be a storm. That's why he sent them out there. You mean the Lord will send you out in a storm? Sure he will. 
Because there's a whole bunch of reasons why, they, why he did that. But the Lord had them right where he wanted them. And, and so the Bible says, and the, but the Lord saw them. I'm glad that nothing has happened in the past 90 days or in the past four years that has caught God by surprise. As a matter of fact, there's been nothing that's happened in the past 6,000 years that has caught God by surprise. As a matter of fact, there's never been anything that has ever caught God by surprise. He declared the end from the beginning. The Bible says, and he saw them. And then notice this, what was going on. The Bible says they were toiling in rowing. And the scripture says, for the wind, for the wind. So Mark not only notices the perception of their toiling, but Mark names the purpose of their toiling. The reason they were having to toil, the reason they were having to row so hard is because they were in a headwind and the wind was blowing straight at them. And so they were really having to fight it and they were really having to to put a lot into it. Uh, They were toiling in rowing. I think it's interesting, even in the flight back and forth to Puerto Rico, it took us 26, longer, 26 minutes longer to come back than it did to go down. And primarily the reason is we were flying west, north and west. And so we were flying, in, flying into some headwinds. I've seen it coming back from Europe. I've seen it many times. I've seen our, our uh, over-the-ground speed, I've seen it get over 600 miles an hour before. And they deliberately take the big jets and they get up in the jet stream and they'll catch that jet stream and they deliberately do that and get a tailwind. And it can, it can move you along as much as 100 mile an hour faster than your, than your engines are propelling you. And you get that tailwind. But at the same time, friend, uh, if you t- are coming back the other way. First time my wife had been transatlantic, bless her heart, I, I said, now honey, we going over and it, it wasn't the best. We were on an MD-80 I think it was on the way over, and, and uh, it wasn't the best. I said, my honey, if we ever get on a 747, man, those things are like flying houses. And I said, man, you just get up and walk around, and you won't even realize you're flying. It is so nice. They got upstairs in them. I mean, it, it's amazing. Uh, first class actually sets up in the top of the thing, and it, that thing hauls 425 people, and it's just, you know, we get on one of those, honey, it's going to be so nice. We were coming out of, we'd been to Israel, coming out of, and gone to Egypt, and coming back up out of Egypt. We hit Rome, and we got into a pilot strike, and the pilots were late showing up for work, and all of the pilots were like four hours late showing up, and they were doing a slowdown against uh, Alitalia Airline, and so there's a big deal that was going on, and so here we are hung in the terminals, and all the, everything's backed up, and all the flights are backed up, and so they decide the pilots, once they finally got us there and got us on this big 747, they decide instead of taking the great northern route and, and getting up there, they decided that they're going to take a shortcut and try to come across and make up some time. The problem is we got a strong headwind. And I'm going to tell you something. It was like a house. It was really like flying in a house. It was like flying in the house that Dorothy did on The Wizard of Oz. That's kind of what it was like. I've never, I thought the wings was going to fall off of that airplane. Wasn't nobody much on it because everybody got other flights and everything. So nobody, the, the, the luggage compartments kept coming open. It was a jumping up and down. And my wife looked at me. She was green looking. And she said, I thought you said it was going to be calm. 
I said, well, it's, it's supposed to be, it, it, you know, and I never been on, but boy, you bucking that headwind, that thing jumping up and down. And when you get a, something that big, uh, a moving, I'm telling you, it's, I'd have rather been on a Cessna any day of the week as I had that thing and everything in that thing jumping up and down. We, I, we, 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 we could even lay down there with nobody on it. So we tried to get seats where we could lay in them, put all the armrests up. Problem is you had to put your seatbelt on, keep it from throwing you in the floor. And so it was the longest flight I think I've ever been on is that flight coming transatlantic, bucking that headwind, coming back over. It was terrible. Well, you can imagine what these fellows are doing. They're toiling and rowing. The Bible says for the wind, and look, look what it says, was contrary unto them. And so this toiling on their journey, uh, Mark notes not only the, the perception of their toiling, that Christ saw them and the purpose of their tolling uh, because uh, they're trying to get across. But then the persistence of the tolling for the wind was contrary unto them. Now, let me see if I can bring this together and make some sense out of where we're going. There's the preparation for the sailing in verse 45. There's the peril of the sailors in verse 47. But I want to spend some time and focus here. Really, everything up to this point has been introduction. On the latter part of verse number 48, I want to focus on the preeminence of the Savior. Now, you listen to me very carefully. We better focus on the preeminence of the sailor, of the Savior. We better focus on what God's doing. Somebody said, well, I don't see God doing anything. Oh, friend, God's doing a lot of things. It's amazing what God's doing. It's fascinating what God's doing, both here and abroad. God's doing some things. Matter of fact, I think I've heard more people pray in this past week and burden than I think I have in four years. I don't think I've heard of people, I, I mean, people have been praying. People have been scared. I get that. Uh, I, I mean, I was a little bit uneasy, but I done, done stepped out, you know, and, and I had commitments, and so I had to make them. But I will say this, when I arrived in Puerto Rico, son, the National Guard was everywhere. They were in hazmat suits. I didn't think we was going to even get in because uh, they had such tight COVID restrictions in, in Puerto Rico, you can't go outside of the, anywhere. You cannot be seen outside without a mask on. Every restaurant, they take your temperature, sanitize your hands. Every restaurant. They wouldn't let me order at a Burger King without a mask. A policeman will stop you on the street if you don't have a mask. And that is just a sign of things to come, friends. I'm just telling you. Because they're very liberal anyway. And that's just a sign. And they're not, they've not had that big a COVID problem. Uh, but that's a sign of what's coming. You just might as well go ahead and get used to that. And you say, well, I'm not going to wear a mask. Well, you're not going to fly an airplane. Well, I'm not going to wear a mask. You're not going to eat in a restaurant. Well, I'm not going to wear a mask. Well, you're not going to go in a grocery store. So I'm not sure if you're going to fast for a while or what you're going to do, but you're going to have to figure it out. Uh, you know, get some masks, go get your groceries, because I'm telling you, it's going to get tight. It's going to get strict, and I expect it to happen sooner or later. And I've already seen a little bit of what it looks like. And I saw the National Guard enforcing it with my own eyes, okay? So this is not something somebody told me about. I saw it with my own eyes. And so just, just come back from it. We better focus on the preeminence of the Savior. We better focus on what God's doing in these days. Look what the Bible says. That he saw them toiling and, and rowing, verse 48, for the wind was contrary unto them. And notice what the scripture says. And about the fourth watch of the night. This same passage is found in Matthew. Matthew 14 says in verse 25, And in the fourth watch. Mark says it was about the fourth watch. 
Uh, uh, excuse me, John says it was about the fourth watch. Matthew said it was in the fourth watch. So what time was it, preacher? Well, the first watch began at 6 p.m. And it ran from 6 p.m. until 9 p.m. The second watch began at 9 p.m. and ran until 12 midnight. The third watch was from 12 midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch of the night was from 3 a.m. until 6 a.m. until the sun came up. So the night was divided in four ways, four three-hour periods. Now notice what time it was. It was about the fourth watch. So let me just, let's just see if we can figure it up here. Now not from the time they left necessarily, because we don't know what time they left. But from evening, from the 6 o'clock hour, to the 9 o'clock hour, they'd have been rowing three hours. How far is it, preacher? It's about eight miles across, roughly eight miles. I, I checked. Most rowboats, if you've got a, a standard boat, most people can row between two and three miles an hour. If you've got several that are rowing, maybe faster than that. But that's just, let's keep it slow. Between two and three miles per hour. So in other words, an eight-mile crossing, that should have happened in about a watch, about three to four hours. As a matter of fact, it probably should have taken, maybe he, he turned them loose at three, maybe they should have been there but dark. Don't rightly know, the Bible doesn't say exactly. And they certainly could have navigated, maybe by the lights of the city. But the bottom line is that the first watch, they rode for three hours. Have you ever rode for three hours? Have, have you ever rode a boat for three hours? Have you, have you ever rode anything? Have, you know what that feels like? Oh, my word. I mean, rowing is one of the most... Uh, one of the hardest things, cardiovascular, I mean, it, it is, it'll wear you out. You just can't believe how hard that is. One time, uh, we had a little, little old boat, little rowboat, had a little Elgin engine on it. And I was playing that thing, I was about 12, and I would get on Cascade Lake, and we'd, we'd run up and down the lake in that thing, and, and uh, it was a lot of fun, little, little old boat. I've still got that boat. And that engine's long gone, but I, I've got the boat. And so I'd gotten down on the lower end of the lake, and I don't know if the engine quit or if I turned it off. Anyway, I went to crank that bad thing, and it wouldn't crank. And I pulled, and I pulled, and I primed, and I pulled, and I pulled, and I primed, and I took the cover off. And so here I am, I'm 12 years old, and I'm working on this engine. A two-cycle engine, you know, and I'm checking to see if it's got spark, and I'm doing all this stuff. And I get pretty involved in, in, in trying to work on that motor. What I didn't realize was it had been a pretty rainy season that year, and the water was flowing across the top of Cascade Dam. And they were making power at the time, and so they were, they were pulling uh, the draw that normally goes out through the, through the spillway, a big, big, big pipe full of water. That was going out. But also there was enough water where it was spilling over the top of the concrete dam. And so I'm busy working on the engine. And I look up and I can see the top of the dam. There's a big, there's a, I can see. There's a piece of wood hung there. And I can see the top of the dam. And it ain't that far away. And I notice that I'm drifting toward it at a pretty quick pace. You ain't never seen a young and paddle like that in all your life. The problem was, it, it, you pad, if you paddle on one side, it goes in a circle. 
my arms are so short, I was so little, I'd have to paddle one over here and I'd switch seats and paddle over here. I wasn't getting no, so I crawled up in the front of it, where it was narrower, where I could paddle on one side and the other side. Well, and when I did it, dipped the front of the boat in, the back of, I was in a mess. I'm going to tell you something. When I finally got out of danger and got that thing, you know, uh, friend, you couldn't throw me down on that end of the lake. I, I've never been back. You couldn't, you couldn't run me down there with a shotgun. There's no way. I, it terrified me, and I'm terrified to this day. I'm telling you something. You want something that'll work, give you a workout, try rowing. But try rowing against the wind. So these people, in the first watch, they've rowed at least three hours. But it's past that now. So they rowed through the second watch. Now they've been rowing for a total of six hours. And now the third watch. They've now been rowing for nine hours. Here's the thing. If you can row at about two or three miles an hour, should have been about three hours, four hours to cross the lake. Should have arrived at least by the end of the first watch, at least by nine o'clock, time to go to bed. But think about what I'm fixing to say. They had only rowed four hours or four miles in nine hours. They were making less than 2,700 feet per hour. And so you say, well, how far is that? That's from our property line to Crab Creek Road. And it took them an hour to go that far. That's how far. That was their average speed. That's as fast as they were running. But here's the catch, here's the, here's the key that I want you to take away from this if you, if you don't get anything else. The Lord noticed it, and the Lord saw it, and the Lord came to where they were. They were still rowing. They hadn't done what he told them. He said, go to the other side. They, they hadn't done it. But son, they had Charlie horses in their arms of trying. You see, it was the fourth watch. And so conceivably, they've been rowing 10 hours. Depending on what time they left. If they left at 5 in the afternoon, they've been rowing 10, 11 hours. If they left after 3 o'clock, they left 12 hours. Can you imagine rowing a boat for 12 hours? And you're, not even, you're just halfway across? What are you trying to say, preacher? There's a whole lot of people that's just, they haven't said it. But in their heart, they're saying, it's over, I quit. I'm serious. I don't know. Somebody asked me today, when are we going to be back to normal, preacher? And I, I've been thinking about that. I have a fear this morning that Anchor will never be back to where it was. Because I have a fear that there's some people who won't ever be back. For whatever reason. I'm very serious. They were faithful in the first watch. They were faithful in the second watch. They might have even rode with us through the third watch. But the fourth watch is coming. Here's what I'm trying to say. It's not time to quit. Praise God children. It's almost daylight. Think about it. It's a whole lot closer to daylight than it is the beginning of the darkness. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
somebody said, well, boy, we get these shots, it's all going to be over. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but you still are required to wear a mask when you have your shots. You still are required to do everything that you're doing now when you have, even though you got your shots. I told my wife, I said, if they told me I'd never have to wear one of them things again, I'd probably break into the clinic where they got the shots and give it to myself. I'm so desperate that I thought, if I thought for one minute that I, I didn't have to wear that thing ever again, hallelujah. Hey, listen, I'd, somebody said, would you, listen, I'd get me, the, if they'd give me a card that said you'd had the shot, so then I'd wear it like a badge. I'd get me something to go around my neck, and I'd, I'd pray it around. I'd pooch my check out. Look at me. I got, I, hey, I'm Superman. Look at me. I'm inoculated. Woo! If I thought I could visit the hospitals and I could go and do, and yeah, I'm telling you, I'm there. Somebody said it'll make you glow in the dark. At this point, I, hey, at, at this point, it, it doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? Uh, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Man, I'm tired of this mess. If it meant we could have fellowships and sheriffon and homecoming and nanner pudding and all the rest of the things. So I, I'm sick of this mess. You ain't, somebody said, well, preacher, you ain't, you ain't never said that before. Well, you just trust me when I tell you, I'm sick of this mess. I'm sick of it. And I've been one of the ones that had it. And I wouldn't catch it again for nothing. Ain't that right, Molinax? Wouldn't catch it again for nothing. Listen, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want Nobody to catch it. Well, I had few people I'd like to catch it, but not most people I wouldn't want to catch it. Most people I wouldn't. But you know what? Our pediatrician for grandkids, you know what he said? He's one of the gurus of this area as far as medicine. You know what he said? Three years. That's what he said. He said, they're not telling you but the World Health Organization, the CDC, it's three-year pandemic. This thing's with us for three years. And said, with, by reason of, the, of if, the, if, the, if the widespread shots and stuff could cut it down for maybe two, two and a half. Now, let's see what time it is. We're just nine months into this thing. How many still going to be rowing at the end of the year? How many still going to be rowing at the end of two years? How many still going to be rowing at the end of three years? Did you know there's two words that's a, that, that in most countries, not every country, but in most countries there's two words that people know. They know hallelujah in most countries, and they know the word COVID. Did you know that every country on earth knows the word COVID? Did you know that's the only thing that I know of that's ever affected every believer on planet earth at the same time? To my knowledge, there's never been anything that's affected every believer on every continent at the same time like this has. But it's not just us. Every church has suffered. Every mission field has suffered. I'm talking about some way more than we have. Listen, they have not had policemen stand outside your house and dare you to, and put you in your house at 5 p.m. On, or 6 p.m. on Friday afternoon and dare you to come out under threat of being jailed before 5 a.m. on Monday morning. That, that's not happened around here yet. It's happened in Bolivia. It's happened in the Philippines. And it looks like it's going to be happening a whole lot more. Looks like. What I'm trying to say is, 
And it doesn't, it, hey, COVID is just one of the things. Hey, it's a contrary wind, obviously. But I guess my thing is this, and I, now listen to me, I'm not talking about people that are staying home to stay safe. That's not what I'm talking about. Please don't think that for one minute. Please don't think for our audience that's listening that I'm pointing something. That's not it at all. Not at all. What I'm saying is they're just some people that are quitting. They're just quitting. And COVID has been a convenient excuse. And I've got worse news. There is no favorable winds in the forecast. Because when COVID's over, if it ever gets over, by that time there'll be so much control. The liberals have the hothouse, they have the Senate, they have the House of Representatives. They're going to have their way. And it's going to be bad. And it's going to get worse. And they're going to make you ashamed to even be called a conservative. You're going to be ashamed of that. They're going, to, they're going to spend the next four years trying to make you ashamed to be consider yourself a conservative. You know, or, or a Christian. Well, see, all of them are Christians. Nancy and Chuck are Christians. To hear them tell it. But they're going to make you to be your brand of Christianity. They're going to make you ashamed to be your brand of Christianity. That's what they're going to make you ashamed of. And a lot of people are going to fall for it. And a lot of people already have. It's been amazing to me to see how the defectors already and how, how people are running for cover. My friend, listen to me. A ship on land is a monstrosity. But if you get that ship in the water, it's a beautiful thing. When they brought the Sea Hope out, and, I mean, did you know that we have no place? To give you an idea how big Sea Hope is, did you know there's not a place in Puerto Rico that can lift the, the Sea Hope? And we've looked all the way to Trinidad, down to Venezuela. There's nobody that can lift it. There's not a lift anywhere in the islands that can get that boat out of the water. Nowhere. There is a dry dock. So if we had an emergency prepare, they'd have to put cribbing and they'd have to go in and do all this work. Uh, but but they, could, they could dry dock us in Puerto Rico. So if we had a big emergency, there is a dry dock, but that cost a lot of money. There's not a single lift that can lift that ship out of the water. We have to go all the way back to Bayou Labatra to find a lift that can lift that kind of weight. That thing, when she picked it up, unloaded, empty, she, she grossed 220 tons when she was wet. 220. Because it, it weighs it when it picks it up. And there's a machine down there to pick it up. But I want to tell you something. It was a, it was a monstrosity. The, some of the team can tell you. They had to get up. They took an extension ladder, one of the long ones, and put it all the way up. And you had to climb to the top of a, a, like a, a, a huge extension ladder to get on deck of the thing. And standing out of the water, it, it is, it's just it's scary looking. During Hugo, I went down to Charleston. It's our first experience with disaster relief. I saw ocean-going ships on Highway 17. I saw things that were, I mean, I saw things I never seen. In the little town of McClellansville, there were huge shrimpers leaning up against houses. And I'll tell you something, they were a monstrosity to see those things out of the water. Ships are never designed to be out of the water. They're designed to be in the water. The danger happens is when the water gets in the ship. The ship is supposed to be in the water, but the water's never supposed to be in the ship. What's happening is, my friend, the church is designed to be in the world, but never is the world designed to be in the church. 
It's disastrous. It's sinking you when the world gets in the church. And it's exactly what's happening. There's no favorable winds in the forecast. So now what do we do? Well, can I beseech you this morning to keep toiling and praying? Praying for your county, praying for your country, praying for your church. Can I beseech you this morning to keep toiling and reading? Reading for enlightenment. Reading for encouragement. Reading for enrichment. The Bible. Can I beseech you this morning to keep toiling and coming? Now listen carefully. There's more than one way to come. On sight. But if not on sight, online. Let me tell you what's happening. Folks are busy on another device. They got us on, but they got on another device, they're watching, they're, they're checking their Facebook account. And on another device, they're doing this or doing that, doing the other. Listen to me. If it's church time and you can't come because of a disease, be faithful to church. I'm serious. Put everything else aside, turn everything else off, sit down, and take in church. You say, well, I, don't, I can't get online. Well, how about on air? Our services are aired every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday night. Sit down and listen to the radio if you can't do nothing else. My grandma and my grandpa, they had a falling out at church when they were younger. Some stunt my grandfather pulled, and so there was a falling out. But every Sunday morning, without fail, they'd get their baths on Saturday evening. They would get their Sunday clothes on, and they'd sit in front of the radio and listen to the radio. And I had a great uncle who, my grandma's brother, he was a preacher, and he'd preach, and they'd sit to the radio and listen to him preach on the radio. And that often early on Sunday morning, they'd turn on the Florida boys, singing Jubilee, Jubilee, you're invited to the gospel Jubilee, or whatever it was. And they was, but, but there was, and it was funny because they put their Sunday clothes on to listen to the TV, listen to the radio. It was dedicated time. Dedicate some time. You say, well, I can't come, preacher. I would if I could. I understand that. But man, when it comes 11 o'clock, make sure you got everything else turned off. Everything else is done. And you're sitting there and you're wanting something from God. Well, I can watch it later. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about joining in on what we're doing here right now. Get to be a part of what we're doing all at the same time. The body of Christ. We might have, I mean, part of us is here, but about half of us are not. And so we're scattered across about three county area. But if we're in one mind and one accord around what thus saith the Lord, my friend, then the body of Christ is one this morning. Do you understand where I'm going with all of that? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Keep on toiling and coming. Whether it's here or whether it's uh, on, on the computer or whether it's on the radio, keep on coming. Keep on giving. Keep toiling and giving. I'm glad that God's people have been faithful. It has dropped off. It has dropped off. We're, we're not in danger, but it has dropped off. But I want to say keep, be, be, keep toiling in, in, in your percentage given. What do you mean, preacher? Well, you know as well as I do, the 10% is the Lord's. That's your percentage given. 
Somebody said, well, I can't give like so-and-so. Well, you don't have to give like so-and-so. You just give your percentage. And if you didn't make a thousand this week, then you don't owe a hundred. You just owe a percentage of what you did make. See what I'm talking about? And then there's that promise given. Next Sunday is Faith Promise Sunday. And that's that promise given that you promised last year. By the grace of God, our missionaries are paid. But I can tell you this, our margin is shrinking. And we've got a lot of new stuff coming our way. But then there's that third thing. There's that percentage given. That's your tithe. There's that promise given, faith promise. But then there's that prompted given. When God says, give to that cause. I don't have to tell you. God tell you. How much time did I spend talking about Akbar students? Well, not much, was it? Did you know we're still getting sponsorships? And I found out that the uniforms are going to be a little bit more than I had allotted for. And right now, we're just about there. I mentioned it what? I think I said something about it Sunday morning, and then I mentioned it Sunday night. Did you know that by, by Monday afternoon, every one of those was taken care of? Now, I'm not naive enough to think that I'm the one talked you into doing that. I know better. You know what that was? Holy Ghost of God prompted you and said, you and you and you, I want you to give this and this and this. That's the only way you do that. You're not going to raise that kind of money. Mention it no longer than I did and for no more reason than that. Prompted giving. Keep doing it. You say, it's hard, preacher. I know it's hard, especially in the midst of all this mess. It's difficult. That's the point. It is difficult. Keep toiling and giving and then keep toiling and believing. What do you mean, preacher? Toiling and believing. Well, it's getting harder and harder to believe. It's getting harder and harder to believe that everything's in control. But it is. God's not sitting on the throne wringing his hands with his brow wrinkled, worried about how this is all going to turn out. I don't know how to tell you this. Nothing has ever surprised God. It's all under control. You say, they're out of control. God's got them on a leash, friend. All you got to do is tug that leash. And they're right back in control. Believing that everything's in control. Believing everything's on time. Sometimes I think things get a little faster than they ought to be. As a matter of fact, that's probably what we've experienced for the past four years. Things evil probably just got a little faster than it ought to have been, and God just put a little reprieve on it. But we knew it was temporary. We knew that, didn't we? Is that what I told you going in? This is not a, we're not going to start back uphill. This is just a plateau. And as a matter of fact, it's a, it's a plateau that's still sloped, but at least it's not like a bobsled run, which is the way we were heading. We hit a little plateau, slowed down the pace a little bit, but now we back off the preface again. And boy, it's, it's, it's just Katie bar the door to the bottom. And that's where she's heading, to the bottom. But understand, it's time. <laughs> it's God's time. God's timing's right. And he will bring about and, and, and delay and push. When I got to watching how the elections were going other places, when I saw communism voted back in in Bolivia, I shuddered. When I saw some of the other elections worldwide, I shuddered. When I saw some of the things that even what Israel's going through, I mean, Netanyahu trying to get a coalition government. I mean, how many times has this made they've tried? 
and they've had a time trying to put it together, it's been a job. That just tells me what time it is. It's close. But do you understand that the man of sin cannot be revealed as long as the church is here? Do you understand that, hey, as long as you're trying to make America great again, you're not going to have a one world currency. You're not going to have a one world government. As long as the Christians are here, you're not going to have a one world church. But all those things have to be. And the stage is set. And it's coming quickly. I told my wife not too long ago, I said, if Ralph Sexton Sr. was alive and you was to show him the headlines of the morning paper, he'd have a running fit. If he saw what you and I take for granted every day, he'd have a running fit if he saw the morning paper just to see how far this thing has come and how close we are to the coming of the Lord. Everything's in control. Everything's on time. And have trouble, keep toiling, believing that everything's going to turn out. Listen to me. Romans 8, 28, still there. It doesn't say that everything is good. It says that it all works together for good. Together for good. And sometimes the best thing for us is not only the most pleasant thing for us. You understand that? Sometimes the best thing for you is not the most pleasant thing for you. We want it all to be pleasant, don't we? But it's not going to be. That's the hardest thing for your children, your grandchildren. When you know you're doing right, when you know what you're doing is the right thing to do, but when they cry, it breaks your heart. Because it hurts them and therefore hurts you. There was a chief had sent downriver to a missionary compound and summoned a missionary in Africa. So the missionary got some men and they began to pole and they began to paddle and they went upstream to this unreached village. And they met him at the bank and they summoned them in. And they went in to find the chief's son. He had stepped on some type of big spined thorn that grew in the jungle. And it was through the bottom of his foot and it was sticking out the top. And the foot was already starting to get infected and turn red. And through, through translation, he said, the chief said, can you help my son? And he said, I can. He said, but chief, I'm going to have to hurt him in order to help him. And so they went back to the boat and he got a pair of pliers out of his tackle box. And he come inside. He said, now hold him and don't let it move. And he began to take that thorn from the bottom and shove it. The only, it couldn't come out this way. The only way that thorn could come out of that boy's foot was to go all the way through it. And so he began to shove that thorn deeper until he could get a hold of the top of it with that plier. And as they held that boy, his screams could be heard all over the village. And he got so bad that the chief 
run in the door and hollered, Stop! He said, Chief, I I've got to get it out. He's going to get gangrene. He's going to die. I've got to get the thorn out. And he said, he said, he can take it. He's young. He can take it. And the chief said, he might can, but I can't. I can't take hearing my son scream. Do you understand? That's the way God feels about our situation. He hears us when we cry. He hears us when we're in pain. He hears us, my friend, when, when the procedure, my friend, that's going to ultimately benefit us is painful and causes us to grieve and causes us to moan and groan and causes us to, to have great anxiety and pain before God. And we cry as, as His children. He hears. He understands. you got to remember, we're His. He paid a great price for us.